Cameron Silsby, and I head up all of our Van City communities. We worship the same God, my Muslim friend told me. This was a handful of years ago, and it was the first time I had ever heard a Muslim say that. It took me by surprise because I had read parts of the Quran and knew what it did and did not teach about Jesus. I've heard similar things, either explicitly or implicitly said by Hindus, Buddhists, New Age practitioners, other Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, people who are spiritual but not religious, even a secular humanist or two substituting philosophy for God. Why is it that Jesus is so exclusive? The only way to God? The only way for salvation? Why do the scriptures seem so determined to teach this as reality? This seems like a uniquely modern quandary that has arisen in the wake of globalization and the internet and the subsequent exposure to new cultures and thinking and religions that generations before us didn't experience. But that's not the case. The soil the church was planted in and and grew in was very similar and often asked very similar questions. Today, we'll be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Grab your Bible and let's read it together. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the, on the cross. This is one of the highest writings about Jesus in the New Testament. It flows out of Paul's retelling of what the Father has done for us through his Son. And now Paul uses a hymn or a poem to highlight exactly who this Son is, his status, authority, and power. Remember from last time, we talked about how the Colossians lived in a highly pluralistic culture with a lot of religions swirling around and intermixing. To be right with God and to guard against evil spiritual forces and beings wreaking havoc on your life, the cultural norm would have been to align yourself with as many gods and savior figures as you could. Jesus was just another one to add to the mix. But I think it's important for us to be fair to the people in the Greco-Roman culture. We often regard ancient people as superstitious, trying to make sense of the world with pre-scientific explanations of gods and malevolent beings, ignorant at best, foolish and silly at worst. To be sure, there's some truth to that viewpoint. You know, the, the germ theory of disease and modern psychology has helped clarify that different physical and psychological illnesses are not directly caused by evil spirits or unhappy deities to the great benefit of humanity. Thank God for doctors and counselors. 
But generally speaking, at the root of the religious explanations of reality and the religious practices that flowed out of that was the desire to have an amount of control over and insight into your life. Your child, your child gets sick, and instead of just sitting there waiting for the germ theory of disease to be discovered, you go and make a sacrifice to a local deity, hoping to placate their disapproval of you or to call them to defend you against an evil spiritual being, all in the hope that your child will recover. There must be something you can do in response to the brokenness and pain of this world. That response still happens today, but more on that in a moment. In this hymn, Paul is drawing from the imagery of Genesis to explain the place or status of Jesus. Paul has already referred to him as God's son, but that's not anything too special in the culture of Colossae. Heck, even Caesar is considered a son of a god. But Jesus isn't just a son of God, he is the son of God, and Everything has been created through him, which would place him above and over creation itself and everything in it. When Paul mentions thrones and powers, rulers and authorities, he is speaking both of human authority figures, but also explicitly of spiritual entities that people claim have any level of authority or power. Caesar is under Jesus but so are the malevolent dark forces wreaking havoc in your life. And as the faithful image of God and the first to be resurrected, he is above and over God's new creation that is starting to break into reality. The same Jesus who is above and over all of creation is also over the Colossians as their king, who has died on their behalf. Generally speaking, gods don't do that for you. In the hopes of currying favor, you make a sacrifice on their behalf. They do not sacrifice on your behalf. But Jesus is different. We have a more in common with the Colossians than we would like to admit. Most of us don't subscribe to a pantheon of gods with the hopes that it will help with sickness and the fortunes of your business and childbearing and what have you. But that same basic desire to be in control of our lives, to have power over other people and circumstances, still remains. One of the ways we work to have power over others and our lives is through information. We refer to our current age as the information age, and I think that's spot on. News, entertainment, sports, industry, school, you name it, feeds off ever-increasing information and your ability, ability to consume that information. Don't get me wrong, information in and of itself is not a bad thing and it's not a pagan deity, but it very easily functions in our lives in some similar ways to the place religion played in Colossae's culture. This has only heightened in the face of a new deadly disease. To be sure, more information about the disease is not a bad thing. In fact, it can be critically important in the correct hands. And yet, we generally behave in a way that assumes that any scrap of information should be consumed as quickly as possible by the masses of people that have no training in virology or epidemiology or don't have any say in what restrictions should or should not be in place. 
you know, in theory, you could know zero details about this virus and just follow whatever instructions are given to you by those in authority and most likely be no worse off. But information about the virus and what what it's doing or possibly doing or might possibly do dominates everything from local news stations to international news to sports talk radio on down the list. Because there's a demand for more and more information and the feeling of empowerment over our circumstances that information gives us. So today, I want you to read through this text. Read it through at least three times today. Read through it slowly each time, taking five to ten minutes to do so. Invite God's Spirit to speak over you in your time. And then notice things that stick out to you in the text and linger on them, allowing God's Spirit to speak to you through it. Alongside this, I want you to not look at any news or social media today. A good practice could be to read this text, meditating on it, and praying through it in those times you would normally be reading or watching the news or looking at social media. If this sounds daunting, remember, it's just for one day. And it can help you to also have a degree of insight into the potential discomfort the Colossians would have experienced as they discovered and understood the implications of who Jesus is. They were being taught to entrust their lives solely to King Jesus, laying aside the deities and religious practices they once sought for good health, safety, and blessing. In a world of unknowns, may we also continue to learn how to entrust our lives solely to you, King Jesus. Jesus.